This message comes from NPR sponsor Carvana. With thousands of options under $20,000, plus customizable financing terms and down payments as low as $0 down, it's easy to find a car that fits your lifestyle. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today. Terms and conditions may apply. The new Alabama Republican Secretary of State, Wes Allen, was sworn into office in January, and he quickly got to work. Well, day one, I withdrew from Eric. Eric stands for the Electronic Registration Information Center. It's a previously little-known multi-state coalition intended to keep voter rolls accurate across state lines. Eric has been the target of a right-wing misinformation campaign. In March, Secretary Allen told the podcast Alabama Unfiltered that while campaigning, he heard Alabamans' skepticism of the group. That caused some headlines. Um, but that's one thing we saw campaigning statewide when we talked to the voters. Alabama is one of seven Republican-led states to abandon Eric in recent months. After the break, we get into shifting election policy ahead of 2024. We discuss how states will continue to ensure free and fair elections. This conversation is part of our Remaking America collaboration with six public radio stations, including WBHM in Birmingham. We're exploring the ways our democracy is and isn't working for everyone. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. (laughs) Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. On Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we have very important people on our show and then ask them about very unimportant things. Here's U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Uh, We are also reliably informed that among your enthusiasms, in addition to macroeconomic policy, is mobile games. Uh, There is some truth in that. There's some truth in that. Join us for the NPR podcast that considers all the other things. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Big news stories don't always break on your schedule. But with the NPR app, news, culture, and podcasts are ready when you want them. In your pocket. Download the NPR app today. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts.
We've got a lot to discuss, so let's get into it. With me in Birmingham is John Merrill. He's the former Republican Secretary of State for Alabama. He served from 2015 to 2023. John, welcome back to the program. So good to be with you, Jen. Thank you for having me as your guest. And from Washington, D.C., we have Carrie Levine. She's the story editor <clears throat> at VoteBeat. That's a nonprofit elections-focused news organization. Carrie, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. And with us in Los Angeles, California, is Rick Hassan. He's a professor of law and political science at UCLA Law, where he directs the Safeguarding Democracy Project. Rick, welcome back. Good to be with you. So, Kerry, Alabama was the second state to pull out of ERIC. We invited current Secretary of State Wes Allen to participate in the conversation. He declined, but we did. he did offer a statement. We'll read parts of it throughout the conversation. We also invited the executive director of ERIC to participate, but we got an automatic reply that he's traveling on business. But just to, to lay the landscape out for us, Kerry, give us more details about what ERIC does. Sure. Um Eric, until now, I think was was a relatively <clears throat> little known program. Uh, it's a tool that states have for checking for potential voter fraud across state lines, for comparing their voter rolls to make sure that when someone moves or dies, that that they clean up and update their voter rolls. It also provides data so that states can reach out to eligible but unregistered voters. Uh, it's run by its member states, and essentially what it is is a tool that lets them compare their data across state lines since no national database exists. How widely is ERIC used? So it's been at around 30 states. Uh, with the recent withdrawals, it's it's a little lower, and states at various points join and as we've seen this year, can leave. So it's a number that can be in flux. There's there's some talk that California is close to, to joining. Mm-hmm. There's some talk that Texas may withdraw. So it, it right now is in the 20s. Republican Secretary of State for Alabama, Wes Allen, wrote us in an email about what would replace Eric. Quote, we are working on a system that will provide an Alabama solution, and we will be unveiling the details of that system soon. End quote. Now, John, you've said publicly that you disagree with the decision to remove Alabama from Eric. Tell us why. Well, Eric, the Electronic Registration Information Center, is one of the most unique tools that we have to fight voter fraud. And it's very disappointing that some politics have gotten into the decision-making process that actually hurt the people of the state of Alabama. Our goal when I became the Secretary of State and everything that we chose to do was to make it easier to vote and harder to cheat. We were not eligible to join ERIC or the Kansas Interstate Crosscheck System when I became the Secretary. So I asked a first-term legislator, Will Ainsworth, from Marshall County, who is now our lieutenant governor, to actually carry legislation that would enable us to join that network. So we would be able to check dual voter registration patterns and dual voter participation patterns that happen in the same election cycle. If we don't have a tool that will allow us to check against the dual registrations and the dual participation patterns, then it puts us at a major deficit and a vulnerable position when trying to pursue voter fraud cases. So if we're talking about trying to track those patterns and how Eric helps states make sure a state's voting information is accurate, how can Alabama keep its voting rolls accurate without having those data comparisons across state lines? Well, there are other mechanisms that are in place that we've used before, whether it be the system provided by the post office when people move, uh, another system um, 
information updates that we get on a regular basis from the Department of um, um, Medical Examiners when people pass away. Um, but if somebody is on vacation in Florida and they pass away and they're a resident of Alabama, we don't get that report mm-hmm. because that death occurred in Florida. Um, there are other things through the court system where we can get information to help us update our records. But seriously, Jen, this is the premier tool in election and voter integrity that exists today. And even the people who are opposed to Eric on principle, uh, who believe that it's not the best system, people like Christian Adams from the Public Interest Legal Foundation, uh, people like Hans van Spakowski from the Heritage Foundation, know that it's the best system that currently exists today. And they say that publicly. How, how did it change your work in administering elections once Alabama enrolled well, in Well, it made it a lot easier for the 201 registrars in the 67 counties to be able to have information that they could compare against what was already being presented to them so that we would know whether or not someone's name uh, was in question and whether or not there needed to be an investigation about dual participation or dual registration in a particular state as compared to another state in the union. And it's very important. I, I should not let this pass. I don't know there'll be another opportunity to introduce it. Where it's so important to us is to compare against our neighboring states. Mm-hmm. So Florida, Georgia, Tennessee, Mississippi, Louisiana, those states are very important to us because that's where most of our people move to and from. The current Alabama Secretary of State, Wes Allen, campaigned on removing his state from Eric, and he won the election and followed through on that promise, as we said, on his first day in office. Carrie, why was that an effective talking point for his constituents? So that's a great question, right? I think that after the midterm elections, there was a lot of talk about election conspiracy theories having lost their potency about candidates who said that the 2020 election was somehow tainted by fraud um, who didn't win in high-profile races. And that's correct. Of course, those candidates in Pennsylvania and Arizona, they did lose. And that suggests that supporting election conspiracy theories doesn't get you a ton of support in a general election. But I think that what we are seeing is that among a segment of the population, these um, conspiracy theories about previously arcane election administration policies about how elections are run really do still get some traction. And so I think what we're seeing is that among Republican primary voters, there's a there's a group of voters who feel strongly that the elections are not run fairly, that there is some sort of problem and issues around things like Eric are coming out in these elections. So in January, Alabama followed Louisiana in leaving Eric. Other states have done so in the months since, including West Virginia, Florida, Missouri, Ohio, and Iowa. The North Carolina legislature is considering repealing previously approved funding for that state to join Eric. Rick, what will it mean for elections nationwide if the coalition continues to lose member states? Well, it's going to lead to the ironic result that there's going to be greater potential for people to vote twice in two different states. And at the very least, there are going to be more bloated voter rolls, which raises the risk that at some time in the future, there could be double voting. Uh, It's just, uh, to me, hard to fathom that states that are 
saying they're most worried about voter fraud, would choose to leave what is uh, right now the very best protection against such fraud. Fraud is not common in elections, but one of the kinds of frauds that we do see occasionally is people voting in two states, and Eric is the gold standard for trying to deal with that problem. John, when you were Alabama Secretary of State, you fielded baseless accusations of voter fraud from CEO of MyPillow, Mike Lindell. He's an ally of former President Trump. He's backed this false idea that Trump actually won the 2020 election. How did conspiracy theories about the way elections work interfere with your work? Well, primarily, Jen, it hurts the entire process because it raises questions about the authenticity and the certification of those elections. And people will make unfounded accusations, and it's a lot easier to get people riled up and to get them angry and to um, cause them to be interested in questioning the results than it is for them to just accept the facts the way that they are. And the charges that have been levied, just like the charges that have been levied against the Eric system, uh, there's no incidents of occurrence that's ever happened with Eric that has shown any level of vulnerability whatsoever. Uh, No information has been introduced that would have said that there's been a concern or a problem ever. And that's one of the things that's the most disconcerting. And that was the question that I asked uh, Secretary Allen when he was a candidate. I asked him publicly. I asked him privately. Um, members of the media asked him but did not pursue it at a um, what I would say with an intense effort to say, since no vulnerabilities have ever been introduced, what are you going to replace this with? Because there is nothing that currently exists. We should take a moment to note we invited current Alabama Secretary of State Wes Allen to participate. He declined but provided this statement. Quote, the administration of Alabama's elections is often recognized as being the safest and most secure in the nation. We have a talented staff in the office of the Secretary of State that are all committed to ensuring that our elections are safe and secure. As a former probate judge, I served as the chief elections official for more than a dozen elections in Pike County and never had a single error. End quote. Rick, I want to turn to this issue of conspiracy theories and disinformation. This multi-state voting coalition, Eric, was the subject of conspiracy theories. We're heading into another election next year. How big of a problem is mis- and disinformation on voting heading in to the next election? Well, I think it's a big problem because one of the things we don't think about, you know, we think about the voting machines, but what we don't think about is the social aspect of the voting process. And in particular, political scientists have this idea called loser's consent. It's the idea that what makes a democracy function is not that you just count the ballots in a fair election, but that those who are on the losing side of the election accept the results as legitimate. Uh, if you don't have that, uh, if, if people who are on the losing side, they grumble, they're not happy about the results, but they agree that it was a fair election. If you don't have that, you can't really have a functioning democracy. And we know that conspiracy theories have caused voters uh, to not believe that the system is uh, being run fairly. We don't have that loser's consent. And when you're in that kind of system, you see more people who are willing to break the rules the next time because they think they were cheated the last time. And so uh, there's every reason to believe 
that um, there are going to be millions of people in the United States going into the 2024 elections who will not believe the election is fair unless their candidate wins that election. Carrie, what role are you seeing elected leaders play in validating or, or countering conspiracy theories about elections? That's a really interesting question because the answer around the country is, of course, you know, widely varied. So we are seeing elected leaders stand up for elections in really important ways. Republicans and Democrats, secretaries of state and governors come out and say elections were free and fair um, in cases where there have been mistakes, you know, actual issues that cropped up, technical failures. We're, we're seeing investigations of those. Um, but we are also seeing in some cases lawmakers and other elected officials, state lawmakers, members of Congress who point to those things as intentional or who point to those things as a deliberate effort to disenfranchise voters. And so there's a lot of noise out there, both about what happens and about how to view it and how to investigate it. And so I I think that basically everyone can find some reinforcement for their beliefs out there from an elected official right now. John, in in 2020 and 2022, during the last presidential election and the midterms, we talked to elections officials, both Democratic, Republican, nonpartisan, and many of them shared that their administration of elections and, and the public's views and interactions with their offices changed pretty drastically during that time. Their staff faced not just increased inquiries about how the elections processed work, but threats, um, threats of violence. Some offices just lost people because they were afraid to do the work of administering elections. What was your experience here in Alabama? Well, look, Jim, one of the things that happens when you're in a situation like we were in to administer an election is people who are not successful always are interested in challenging the results at some level, no matter how close the election was, whether it's one vote. We had some elections that were decided by one vote on both of those cycles, or whether it's by thousands of votes. But people always have a reason that they lost, and very seldom will they acknowledge that it's because they were a poor candidate, they had a poor campaign, they were underfunded, or they just didn't do a good job. Uh, When it comes to the public response and how people interact with our office, we didn't have people that called to offer threats or or things of that nature. And yet I do know for a fact that some of the people in certain states that reported some of those things, it did not happen the way that it was necessarily reported either. And so that's also a concern because it's like the little boy that cries wolf. And what do you, what do you mean by that? I mean that there were certain incidences that were reported as having occurred that didn't necessarily occur the way that they were, or death threats that were received, or threats of injury or harm that were presented. Um, that was not necessarily the the case. I also know that some of those instances were reported to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, who was charged directly from their chief to make sure that they were investigating all of those instances. And none of those to date have resulted in identification of an individual who has been um, investigated and then indicted and then presented before a grand jury and then had a conviction result. So I just want to make sure I understand. Are you saying that elections officials who who reported increased threats of violence, that those were overblown? 
in some instances. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, you also have to understand this. Different people have different um, perceptions of what someone says when they're introducing a comment that they may not receive as positive. And the way that they choose to respond may be more about their personal preference on what is actually going on than what an objective person would say the factual data reveals. But when you say you know that some of these things were overblown, do you are you basing that on the investigations that have occurred so far? Yes. Are you basing that on personal knowledge? Yes, ma'am, both, and information that has been presented to me. Carrie, I want to come to you because in February you attended a gathering of state-level secretaries of states in D.C. What did you learn from them? You know, certainly the threats against election officials are still very much on everyone's mind, right? And there was a case in August where someone was charged with making a threat against an election official in Arizona and in Maricopa County by the Department of Justice. Uh, That was on everyone's mind. There have been cases like that. And so one of the things that I, I saw was that someone from the FBI was speaking to the secretaries of state and and to the election officials and said, hey, every jurisdiction has someone who is, I, I forget the title, but co- essentially coordinating any threats against elections, against election officials. If you don't know who that is, if you haven't been in touch with that person, you know, please raise your hand. And no one did. Uh, this is something that everyone in the room was really paying close attention to and, and really cared about. And what we've heard from local election officials is that They are working and and struggling in some cases to recruit workers for elections because people have been followed when they're going from a polling place to a central counting facility. Um, In North Carolina, I had an administrator tell me she had someone followed who was really scared by it, right, who didn't know what was going on. Um, and, And so we have issues like that where it's also affecting the ability to kind of recruit an election workforce. It takes so many people to run an election, poll workers and people processing mail ballots at central facilities. I'm sure that Secretary Merrill, you know, has a really good fix on that, on the problems recruiting poll workers in some counties. And so people are concerned about anything that would discourage people from doing this job too. Rick, I'd love to hear from you on this as well. So um, we just held a um, webinar with uh, Judge Schote, who runs um, elections. He's the elections director in Colorado, and with Liz Howard of the Brennan Center for the Safeguarding Democracy Project. People can find that video at the Safeguarding Democracy Project's website. And they talked about lots of threats against election officials uh, and how this is leading to attrition. People are leaving because they don't want threats. Uh, we had a conference for the Safeguarding Democracy Project a few weeks ago, and Stephen Richer, who's the Maricopa County election official, he runs elections in Arizona, he played three minutes of uh, voicemail threats with the most uh, terrible things being said to, uh, you know, some of these people are, are not being paid very much, they're working really long hours, and now they're you know, being threatened with being hung or, or, or with other kinds of violence. So this is a very serious problem, and uh, I, I hear it, from people all over the country who work in elections, that it's become a kind of battleground and they're just trying to do their civic duty and more needs to be done to protect them. You know, John, I just want to circle back because part of what I'm hearing from from each of you is while, while you say these threats of violence have been overblown blown in, I've spoken to a, a number of uh, elections officials, again, on both sides of the aisle, and they say the 
they have been threatened. Maybe no one actually showed up at the office or enacted violence on people, but the calls happen or it's just people showing up, being very forceful. And that's frightening. And when you're trying to get people to volunteer in this democratic process or be paid very little to participate in this democratic process, it's a lot harder to make the case to the public why it's worth it. So I I feel concerned that there would be a downplaying of what elections officials, what I've heard from elections officials about what they're facing. Well, I think it depends on who you're talking to as to how they receive and how they have received those statements that have been made. But I also think it's important to know that whenever somebody has a concern about how the election's been administered and maybe they're calling in a threatening way or they're uncertain about the validity or the certification of the election, it's important to ask that person, which is what we've done on numerous occasions, would you like to come and work at the polls? Would you like to be an election official? Because we would love to have you in one of our 1,980 polling sites in the 67 counties in the state of Alabama. Well, and that's what I've heard from a lot of elections officials. They say, look, this is an open process. We encourage exactly. you to participate in what, again, I've heard from some of them is that it's not a – some of these people aren't interested in participating no. so much as they are just interested in following – the conspiracy theory they Yes, heard. and so what my point to those individuals has been, and I've done that in numerous counties across our state whenever someone has introduced that line of thinking to me, is I've said, well, obviously, if you're not interested in doing that, you're really not interested in the process. You have another agenda that you're trying to advance, which may not be to promote the positive things that are going on in our democratic republic. What advice, if if you had the chance to give them advice, uh, did you give incoming Secretary of State Wes Allen? Well, look, the the thing that I want Secretary Allen to do and all the people that work in the office of the Secretary of State and um, 90-plus percent of the people that are working in that office now were working there when I was the secretary for the eight years that I was in office, is to listen to people across the state to respond to inquiries that are introduced, and to make sure that you're doing everything you can to ensure safe, secure, and fair elections that make it easy to vote and hard to cheat, and that you don't make any kind of differentiation between a Democrat or Republican, between a black or a white, between a man or a woman. Because once you get elected, you're the Secretary of State for all the people in the state of Alabama, not just for the people that may have voted for you because you serve all 5 million people that live in the state of Alabama. We do have to acknowledge the unfounded Stop the Steal movement. Again, it falsely claims that election fraud stole the 2020 election from Donald Trump. It still has followers. It's despite multiple court cases affirming that there was not widespread fraud in 2020. Carrie, what role is that playing in the election legislation that's being debated and passed today? I think we're we're really seeing in states like Texas is that um, people who subscribe to Stop the Steal, who believe the 2020 election um, was not free and fair, even though there's little evidence or no evidence of that, even though courts have repeatedly found that the 2020 election was proper, you know, did have the correct outcome. I think what we're seeing is that those groups are really getting active at the local level and at the state level. And so we're seeing them go to local meetings, right, boards of commissioners and and commissioners court and things like that, 
selectmen, um, you know, depending on the state, we're seeing them try to influence the way elections are conducted Mm -hmm. locally. And we're seeing them organized to lobby state legislators for new, um, new laws. You know, we're seeing them asked to get rid of for instance, using voting machines. There's a county in California that has about 180,000 people that recently voted to go to hand county elections. Mm. And the election officials in those counties, you know, they're scrambling to deal with that because hand counting has been shown to be less accurate, less reliable than machines. But there, there is disinformation out there about voting machines and the reliability of voting machines. And what we have is local officials reacting to that, demanding changes in the way local elections are conducted. We'll talk more about hand counting after the break, not just what it means for election results, but also what it means for when you can get them. Back with more in just a moment. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. The day's top headlines, local stories from your community, your next podcast binge listen. You can have it all in one place, your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. Now let's turn back to our conversation about safeguarding free and fair elections ahead of 2024. Election offices in a handful of states are being inundated with public records requests from citizens. WKMG News in Orlando spoke to Alan Hayes in September. He's the supervisor of elections in Lake County, Florida. Hayes is a former Republican state senator, but the elections position is nonpartisan. We might receive 10 or 12 public records requests in a year. Already in the first um, eight and a half months of this year, we have received over 150 I've got one person that that deals with this, um, probably at least 60 percent, if not 80 percent of her time. Carrie, we've been talking about increased scrutiny of elections. What's behind these requests? Well, in some cases, people are really trying to understand how election works, right? And hey, if we're honest, a few of these requests are probably for me. Um, you know, public records requests, they're an important tool for transparency and and for understanding how the government works for reporters and for the public. And I don't want to minimize that. But at the same time, there are also a lot of cut and paste requests coming in from people who um, are trying to investigate conspiracy theories and look for proof of fraud, and who in some cases are responding to a push from a national figure to ask for something. We at Vopi did a great story a while back on how a rush of people were in the wake of a an event by my pillow CEO Mike Lindell, who has promoted election conspiracy theories, requesting something called the cast vote record in hopes of using it to prove fraud. And in many cases, it was clear that people weren't quite sure why they were asking for it or, or how it could be used. 
Um, because when, uh, when public officials followed up to say, oh, you know, actually the machines we use don't produce that or, um, in our state, that's not public. Can we get you something else? You know, how can we talk about this request? People weren't quite sure how to have that conversation. And so it's clear that some people are asking for records. They're really not sure how to use because they've been told to ask for them. Well, and how are elections offices handling all that paperwork? So the answer really varies, as you would expect, because in some cases, local election officials, uh, you know, offices, they're staffed, they have someone who responds to all such requests from the county, or they have someone whose job this is. And in some cases, you're dealing with really small offices that get very few of these requests and are really struggling to keep up with demand. Um, in some cases, people are making records public and sending them to everyone who asks. You know, people are asking for the same thing. Um, it, it really varies. In Texas, you have a situation where people are asking to inspect actual ballots, which become public a couple of years after an election. And in situations like that, we've seen election officials really set, you know, they can't just turn over the ballots, right? So they're setting up space in their offices for people to come and sit there and review the ballots while an election official makes sure that the ballots remain carefully watched. And so something like that can be really burdensome. Rick, we're talking about voting laws and and policies and how elections are administered, but it's worth talking about funding as well. Congress allocated $75 million to state election officials in the 2023 spending bill, and that's far less than the $400 million some local local administrators were, were asking for. How much should Congress allocate to states for elections? A lot more than they are right now. And we should go back to what happened uh, in the 2020 election. You'll remember we had voting in the middle of the pandemic, and there was um, a great shift to voting by mail, as well as to making polling places safe with uh, things like uh, plexiglass and, and hand sanitizer and all of that. It made elections really expensive. And Congress didn't come up with enough money to deal with these problems. And so who stepped in uh, were um, people giving money, charity. Uh, and and the, the most money came through Mark Zuckerberg of Meta, came through his foundation. And then this has uh, and, uh, amounts, I think, over $300 million. And this has spawned new sets of conspiracy theories as well as new laws that have uh, made it uh, illegal for many states to take private money. And um, I'm all in favor of no private money and full public money for elections, but you need to have the money come from somewhere. And if Congress doesn't provide the money and uh, states can't take uh, charitable contributions to try to uh, make up for the shortfall, we're going to have worse run elections because elections are really expensive to do. And if our elections are run worse, that's only going to fuel more conspiracy theories because we know from recent history that when there are mess-ups in local election offices, they're immediately spun into claims of intentionally trying to manipulate uh, the results of the election, and that further degrades public confidence in the election process. Let's go to our voicemail box. Here's Tracy in Texas. The recent restrictions that we've seen against voting rights, it's certainly troubling, especially for someone who's only recently been aged into voting. You know, I'm 19 years old. And I go to Texas A&M, and the one thing that they've recently done is we used to be able to vote 
in one of the centers on campus, the Memorial Student Center. And we had been able to do that for years, apparently. And then my freshman year, they decided, no more, we're not doing that. Um, And I think that's really troubling because I know that was a center where a lot of students would vote early or students who didn't have other means of transportation would get to vote. And so I think it's, it's really upsetting to see this happening so close to home. Tracy, thanks for that message. Rick, how are changes making it harder or easier for certain groups, in this case, students, to vote? So the first thing to recognize, and it's, it's been implicit in our whole discussion, is that uh, we have a uh, really decentralized election system. Mo- most other countries, there's a national nonpartisan body that runs elections for the whole country. We don't do that. It's a mix of federal, state, and local law. After the 2020 election, after uh, Donald Trump made relentless uh, false claims of fraud, Republican legislators, uh, many of them acted to impose new voting restrictions. I think this was done to please Trump and to please the Republican base. Uh, Some of these new restrictions uh, seemed aimed not really at preventing voter fraud uh, or bolstering voter confidence, but at trying to shape the electorate. Students tend to be more liberal, more likely to vote for Democrats. And so uh, there have been lots of claims that uh, some of these laws are aimed at people like students who are likely to vote for Democrats. Now, whenever a state passes a new law that might make it harder to vote or, say, harder to vote by mail, as we saw in some states after uh, the 2020 election when there was a shift to vote by mail, sometimes it doesn't have a big effect in turnout. And that's because these laws provoke a reaction, which is that people put lots of effort into trying to counter them. It doesn't make them right, but uh, it does mean that you don't always see the kind of um, change in outcomes. Uh, and so we, we end up with this uh, kind of cycle of uh, new laws aimed at restricting uh, a reaction that sometimes includes litigation, uh, more claims of fraud, and then new laws being passed. And it's really not a very sound way to enact public policy or to have an election system that both protects voting rights in a strong way and that promotes election integrity. Let's circle back to hand counting. Last week, the governing board of Shasta County, California, decided to switch from machines to a hand count voting system. The registrar of voters said that would require more than 1,200 new workers and at least $1.6 million. Carrie, how does a hand count change the way an election is carried out and what it means for the timing of results? Uh, So the answer is results take longer, right? Like it takes longer to hand count ballots than it does to use a machine. And also studies have shown that hand counting is generally less accurate. It's the kind of repetitive, tedious work that the people honestly are not super good at. Machines are just better at that. And so um, it takes time for people to count huge numbers of ballots, right? Tens of thousands of ballots, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of ballots, to cross-check their results, to make sure that they're accurate. It takes time, it takes space, and it takes a lot of people. And those people typically have to be paid. So it's an expensive, lengthy process. Rick, I want to touch on the U.S. Supreme Court case Moore v. Harper. Uh, The court heard arguments in December, and the decision could have big implications for upcoming federal elections. Can you give us a quick rundown on that case and what you're watching? Well, it's the most complicated case I've ever tried to explain, Uh, so 30 seconds will be tough. But the question is whether state courts 
applying state constitutions can limit what state legislatures do in federal elections. In the particular case, the North Carolina Supreme Court said that partisan gerrymandering violated the state constitution, and the legislators are claiming no, uh, the legislature under the constitution has absolute power without constraints from the, even the state courts to decide what the rules are going to be for federal elections. And that would have big implications, not just for gerrymandering, but for all the rules that apply to uh, how people um, are going to conduct elections for Congress and for president. That's Rick Hassan. He's a professor of law and political science at UCLA. He directs the school's Safeguarding Democracy Project. And Carrie Levine, the story editor at VoteBeat. Rick, Carrie, thanks for speaking with us. This show was part of 1A's Remaking America collaboration with six partner stations across the country. Remaking America is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And our thanks to Remaking Partner Station, WBHM in Birmingham, Alabama, for hosting us this week. Today's producer was Avery Jessa Chapnick. Amanda Williams leads our Remaking America project. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. Hey. I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at LifeKit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the LifeKit podcast from NPR. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts.